Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. Kirsten Johnson has shot an incredible number of documentaries over the last 25 years, uh, two of my favorites, uh, The Oath and Throw Down Your Heart, uh, but also uh, kind of landmark films that everybody's heard of, like Citizen Four and Fahrenheit 9-11. And she's worked with a number of great directors, including her longtime collaborator, Laura Poitras. So I'm really happy she's here today. Um, I can't think of anybody better to talk about the art of shooting a documentary. But Kirsten also has an amazing new film called Camera Person, uh, which is based largely around footage from her 25 years of capturing life and tragedy from around the world. And the film really tackles um, what it means to be a camera person and to be an artist, and I'm super excited to talk about that. So Kirsten, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So how did you become a nonfiction cinematographer? It certainly happened accidentally, but it was because one of the first offers that I got to work was with um, Amy Ziering to shoot Jacques Derrida in Paris. And that wasn't anything I was going to say no to. And um, The travel. Yeah, well, more like to get to be with a person mm -hmm. that you respected and admired. And frankly, I was deeply intimidated by him as a person. Um, so that experience and it happened in a time, you know, that was sort of 1991, 92, 93, we first started shooting with him. And it was a time before it was really normal to shoot people living their daily lives. So to have this opportunity to spend time in Jacques Derrida's home and to look at the books on his bookshelf and just to be around him working, it suddenly made me realize the camera gives you this extraordinary permission mm -hmm. to be in other people's lives and just observe what they're up to. So when you were studying film, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, obviously you were using camera skills, but were you thinking more around directing? Well, you know, me like everybody <laughs> thinks always of directing, but um, I went to La Famise, which was the French National Film School, and I got excellent advice from someone when I told them I wanted to go there. I was the first American to attempt the concours, you know, which is this sort of year-long competition to get into this film school. And somebody told me, you know, do not be crazy, don't try for the directing department because it would be too much an affront to the French ego to have an American get into the directing department. And so they said, do one of the technical departments. And, um, you know, there were the choices of sound, editing, production, and image, so image. And I said, that's, that's what I want to try. But I never really held a camera before other than taking a few stills. And um, I really immediately fell in love with the camera because I realized it was, it was the center, it was the heart of a film shoot. Um, so to get to be there was where I wanted to be. One thing I love about Camera Person is it really captures how much the camera person has to do with coverage and framing and how we experience this, you know, nonfiction film, which of course is true of the camera person and, and, and fiction film. But one thing I've always wondered is, obviously you have an eye, obviously you have a sense of coverage, you have a sense of framing. How does that collaboration with a director work? Is it vary from director to director or is it, you've got Kirsten Johnson, you've got my eye and this? Well, you know, it's, I mean, it's such an interesting question because I would have said, no, I don't really have an eye mm -hmm. that you, you can't, recognize me or find me in the footage. And then, of course, making camera person has revealed to me that that's not the case. I'm absolutely <laughs> there with my eye. But I've always thought, you know, 
each collaboration with a director, and that means each different time you make a film with the same director, because I've collaborated repeatedly with people like Ginny Redeker or Laura Poitras, and what's amazing is each time you make a film with that person, you're having a new conversation. Some of it relates to themes that you've both been interested in for a really long time, mm -hmm. but because of the new circumstances of the filming, you're both realizing what are the limits? What are we trying to figure out? What are our constraints? And then you, you develop this sort of intellectual, uh, you know, sort of set of themes, but then that plays out when you're shooting. And so I, I definitely think, for me, I see it as um, this sort of system of relationships. And so, yes, my eye is a part of it, but um, the fact that you're working together with someone means you're looking for different things than you alone would be looking for. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of like each documentary ha is framed in a specific way with a certain set of limitations and that's somewhat dictating. Absolutely, and, and you hope that. I mean, that's what you want because you want each film to be of its own piece, right? Be made of its own whole cloth. And, and I think that What's interesting for me in having gone over this footage is you realize, oh, there are cameras that spread through certain periods of time, and so there's a certain look to films that were shot in a certain range of history um, because of the camera technology. But then you can look at who's holding the camera and with making the film with whom, and there are really different things that people are looking at, and so that it might be we're really involved in looking at physical relationships between people, and so it's very palpable bodies. Or someone might be really interested in the geometry of architecture, and so you're really framing with a kind of symmetry. Mm -hmm. um, so these things, these things vary, and then suddenly what's sort of happening in the energy or the speed of the film changes the energy. And what's it, I don't know how much experience you have doing this, but I know you have some. What's the process like when you are both mm. director and cinematographer, yeah. considering how much experience you have mm. collaborating with yeah. the director? It, and, and I also ask that because over the last 10 years, we're seeing more and more of those type of films. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, it, the, even just the films that you were playing with at Sunday, yeah. Kirsten's film uh, premiered at Sundance this year, and even just some of the films that were both in the world and the US category, it was lots of one person shot right. films. Yeah. And I'm wondering, Considering someone that has directed and done yeah. the camera, what's that like for you? Uh, so, I mean, it's such an interesting question because I think it's very much the case that a lot of films are being made by people who are doing multiple roles. They're doing sound and directing, or they're directing and shooting, and there are definitely advantages to that. You know, so I think it helps the intimacy question. Um, you, if you're the director and you're the camera person, you can be really looking for what you're looking for, but I think you become, you can become pretty myopic. You don't really realize what's beyond your peripheral vision, which is what happens when you're collaborating with other people. You've got a sound person and a director behind you. They are seeing the bigger picture. They know where you're going next. They know what time it is. Um, but what I found when I was shooting for myself, I, I was kind of like a mischievous child. Um, you know, I, there would be, I remember very distinctly, I was supposed to be covering the opening of this clinic in Afghanistan, a health clinic, and I was so, I just felt like, oh, I don't have to cover this the way I would have to cover this if a director was here. And I ended up spending the whole time filming um, men sort of worrying their prayer beads. 
And it's actually this glorious sequence of hands with, you know, with their prayer beads. I in no way covered the opening of the health clinic. Mm -hmm. And later, you know, which is what something a director would say, like, like we need that. Yeah, we, like, we where's did, the wide yeah. cover, the person who's giving the speech? Yeah. And and I just, I kept thinking, well, we're hearing the sound of the speech, yeah. and it's so much more interesting what's going on with the hands. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, ultimately, for the film I was making, I didn't need that scene, mm -hmm. but I absolutely did not get coverage, because I fell into this rabbit hole of being obsessed with these men's hands. Um, but I created a whole other sequence that was out of space and time and that could be used in a different place in the film. Um, but so I think sometimes you're pushing against this obligation of I, I need to get coverage, which can be exhausting as a camera person. One of the things that strikes me as kind of like this innate skill that you have to have in shooting documentaries is where to stand. Is that, in, in watching, and one of the things I really started to appreciate with camera person uh, in which you're holding a lot of long takes and stuff is, is it, your compositions are beautiful but there's also just this instinctive trust of being where you are and letting the moment capture is that is that something I mean when we'll talk about the film you spent 25 years filming is this something that's just a skill and an instinct that develops it's definitely something that develops and I you know I mean I work with a lot of young people who are hoping to film and I really encourage people to accept that it's a process in which you must miss things, in which you must make mistakes, in which you know you shoot something and go home and sort of you know feel ill because you've missed it. Um, that is necessary because you are filming things that have never happened before and will never happen again. And there are certain patterns to things, and so that absolutely, as you work more, you start to realize, oh, if I stay in this moment something might happen. So the moment in camera person where the boxer is livid and goes into the bathroom and I just stay there while he's yelling inside the bathroom, that was a real, you know, a real question for me. Do I stop here? I was sort of dying to follow him into the bathroom and then, I, you know, that wasn't fair. That wasn't the right thing to do um, on the level of his privacy. He had deliberately gone into a private space. So for me to follow him didn't feel like the right thing to do, but the experience told me, just wait here. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I got to see the other boxers respond to him and then he reemerged. Um, but early on in my career, I absolutely would have turned the camera off, no question. And that I've learned over time not to do is just let it roll and slow down. And to follow and to switch angles and things. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the really important things to think about is your physical presence in space, right? So that you, you allow yourself to move and you ask yourself to move. Even if you, you found a beautiful angle and it's going really well, physically changing position, all of a sudden, boom, you see it all brand new all over again. So the thing, if there's enough time in a situation, I always ask myself to get as close as I can and as far as I can. Um, and sometimes that's limited and you end up only sort of in the medium space. But doing that, getting really a lot of remove and then getting sort of insufferably close. Both of those things give you new information to shoot differently. So sort of every time you move, it gives you new information. So how did camera person come about? I mean, it, it, my sense <laughs> is, it, it, I mean, you're drawing from about, I think, 25 years of, yeah. but, and, and based on watching this film, and I don't know if this is actually true, it feels like you've been 
traveling around the world for those 25 years. I mean, yes. I don't know how much of your life really has been on the road. But. It has a lot of it, a lot of it. Um, you know, it's one of these films that really happened to me. Um, it emerged out of another film I was trying to make. So I'd gone to Afghanistan in 2009, shot over the course of three years, edited for eight months, made a film, and then I showed it to one of the protagonists of the film, and she said, I'm too afraid to be in your movie. And it just completely blindsided me. I, you know, we had been complicit during the making of the film. She'd given me her permission. But when the film was nearly finished, she, you know, said very clearly, I'm afraid. And I had to respect that, even though, you know, I had her signed release form and all of that. And that put me into this framework of questioning all of the promises we had made to people over the course of the time that I had been filming. Because the truth is, you know, we're all in history and the history that I'm in is there's a before the internet and an after the internet in terms of the distribution of images. So when we used to promise people, I can control your image, you know, this film won't be shown in Afghanistan, your neighbors won't see it, I can't make that promise anymore. And you know, that started in the early 2000s. It took time to get to places like Afghanistan, but by the time I finished the film, that was absolutely the case. Her neighbors could get a pirated copy of the film and watch it on their phones and have a direct, you know, altercation with her about it. And um, so that just made me want to go back into the past and sort of think about what we thought we were doing when we thought we could control images. So. A lot of the footage that you went back and found from those films was, and I, I think I'm right about this, but you're, you're finding moments, you know, obviously as a camera person, the idea is for your hand and your presence not to be felt. And I believe a lot of this footage is footage that was not used because, you know, it's, in the beginning it's very funny, you sneeze. Um, and then there are, but there are these moments where you are interacting with or making eye contact with subjects, or we could see you reframing, mm -hmm. or we could see um, you in a dangerous situation and this kind of negotiation of how we're gonna get this shot. So it's, it's a series of footage where it's the opposite, where we're getting a right. sense. And it feels like you've dug deep into the archive for that. So what was that process like? Because, I mean, did all these films and all these filmmakers actually still have all of the footage and then you had to go through what I have to assume, especially in the modern era, <laughs> hundreds of hours of, or is yeah, there something, right, or right, is right. there moments that you would like kind of logged, you're like, right. I kind of remembered this, or I kind of remembered that. There was they, absolutely no logging, I can promise you that. No, I mean, you're, you're, you're accurate in your approach to thinking about it. I mean, I, I had certain experiences, so sort of, moments that really had stuck with me and I wanted to revisit those. So those were sets of footage. Um, and then, um, you know, as we got into it with this idea of there would be no voiceover, we began searching for the evidence of me in the footage and there wasn't a lot. Like that's not what I'm supposed to do is show me in the footage. And so um, that became very frustrating at one point. It was like, there's no image, there's no, like, I'm not here anywhere. But um, basically, the thing that was remarkable and was deeply gratifying to me as a person was that every single director that I went back to gave me carte blanche to look at the footage, to work with whatever footage I wanted to, and everybody gave me the rights to it. No one asked me to pay for it. Um, so that was really, 
a beautiful thing for me as an individual to say like, oh, okay, you know, I gave my all when I was shooting and people respected that and um, respected my need to go back into the footage. And I would say in many ways it really was a need in a lot of these cases. It really was sort of a deep emotional need. And interestingly, I think the footage that was the most emotionally traumatic, the most politically charged, like for example, the James Byrd footage, mm or the footage in the maternity ward in Nigeria. With that footage, I had a lot of conversation with the directors about how I would use the footage. Um, and I think that indicates how charged the questions around representation are in those cases. Um, so that, was, that, that makes sense to me and, and made me feel the camaraderie of the documentary community, like the sort of seriousness of of questioning that goes on around ideas of representation from all the directors that I work with. And that was a, the, the James Byrd moment, because that was, um, if, if James Byrd was the, the gentleman who was uh, dragged, you, to, death dragged to death. Yeah, in Jasper, Texas. Um, and uh, the lawyer prosecuting the case is going through the horror of, I mean, of what this man went through. And at that point in the movie, which feels about like 25 minutes in or so, we've gotten used to the fact that that's you behind the camera or that there's, you know, in kind of a little bit more playful ways. Yeah. And that movie, that moment of which I had heard him discuss this before, but then suddenly thinking that I was thinking about you mm. and I was thinking about you filming that, mm. which is really the trick of this is that without you appearing, that the way that this is carefully crafted is that we are kind of very much thinking about the camera person. And I'm wondering, because it's very unorthodox, if you had pitched, and not that you would pitch this to me, but if you had pitched this to me, I would have said, you know what, sounds like a good doc short. But the idea that you would have something that could sustain itself yeah. for, as for your film as a feature length film. And, and, and that was the moment where I really was like, this thing's working. So I'm wondering though, for you going into this project, what made you think that this was gonna work and that you were gonna be able to kind of um, bring an off-screen protagonist or almost a point of view to this? Well, it's hilarious because I absolutely didn't think it was gonna work. I, I really, it felt deeply impossible uh, to make this film, um, but it was, it was honestly a, a need. I needed to understand um, what is this work doing to me, um, what is it doing to the people that I film, and the catalyst of this young woman in Afghanistan saying like no after we'd, she'd said yes for three years really threw me into this series of questions. and. Um, I just got back from Bosnia from the Sarajevo Film Festival and um, I said to a number of people like, ah, oh, you know, so much has happened in the two years since I was here and everyone said, what are you talking about? You were here last year. And I was like, oh, wow, I was there last year. And when I was at the Sarajevo Film Festival last year, it was before I had returned to visit the family in Focha. And what I felt at that time was that I would never be able to finish this film. And I felt just like sort of in this desert of, you know, we've put a huge amount of effort into this. And like you're saying, like if I'd pitched this to anyone, of course I pitched it to people and I reached out to foundations and I tried to get funding for it. And everybody said, can't quite imagine it. Don't know how you're gonna pull this off. And I had those same doubts myself. Um, 
But so what was kind of incredible was once I returned to the family in Foja and then filmed with the translator and the driver who had helped us on the previous um, shoot that had brought me to Bosnia, all of a sudden I could see it. I could see the end of what has been an incredibly long journey. Um, and so that I went from the feeling of impossibility to possibility last year in Bosnia. And literally, I mean, this year has been extraordinary in terms of how the film is being received. I did not see it coming at all, honestly. And so it was amazing to have everyone tell me, no, 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 you were here last summer. And I'm just like, I can't believe I was here last summer. It felt so long ago. Is that part of it? I mean, I don't want to summarize your work as being simply a good percentage of, of your work is going to worn, torn areas mm -hmm. or, or, or looking at some travesty that's happened to humanity around the world. There are other films, but I mean, yeah. that, and, and so much is, um, um, and we see this in the film, that you actually make these connections, these very human connections in filming this. Is part of this the fact that you've been moving from project to project for so long and that you have these intense experiences and leave yeah. that there was like almost a need to 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 reflect on it yeah no question kinda... yeah yeah i mean i think one there was both a sense that a lot had accumulated inside of me um in terms of difficult stories that i'd taken in but also just you know i think the loss like i like i love people when i film with them and so that you have these really very intense connections that, you know, whatever, like here we are having this conversation, but I want to keep talking to you, you want to keep talking to me, and then boom, we all have to leave and go somewhere else. And so in some ways I wanted to acknowledge how present everyone had been. Um, and, you know, it is true that I've done a lot of um, post-conflict zone films, but you look at Throw Down Your Heart, which is the film that you say that you love, it's like, it's a film about music, it's a film about artistic expression and collaboration, but in many ways that was a film about slavery. Yeah. And that's the thing I feel like sort of when you dig deep into human experience, like there's enough injustice and difficulty in life and in the world that if you are really connecting to people and their quest to create something artistically, you're probably digging into some pain somewhere. Um, and often that's the core or that's the place where the impulse to make comes from. And so, you know, in filming Haruna and Bela in their artistic collaboration, we discovered this incredible moment where Haruna has spent 10 years writing a song about his father who died. He takes us to visit his father's gravestone. And we're there, it's behind the village where his mom still lives, who's an old lady, and he's talking about his father's death. And suddenly, in the middle of it, he says, oh my goodness, like, I've spent 10 years writing this song about my dad's death, but I'm going to be on tour when my mom dies. And I had this moment where I was thinking, like, oh, poor Haruna, like, that's totally the case. He's going to be traveling when his mom dies. And then all of a sudden, I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to be traveling when my mom dies. Is that what prompted the footage of going to shoot, shoot yeah. your mom? Yeah, well, I mean, it was just like, Absolutely, that moment with Haruna for me made me realize how we're all in denial of the, of the most huge sort. Even here we're like focused on the experience of others uh, and then it's ours is happening concurrently and we put a huge amount of time and effort into looking at the other and paying attention but you know, are you taking 
the photo of your mother or are you filming your mother when you're putting so much into attention to filming Haruna's mother, right? And I, that moment for me, it was also about like the self and other. You know, like I sort of felt like, oh, I was empathizing with Haruna. But then you realize that was, I was still outside of the experience until suddenly I said, wait a minute. I mean, traveling when my mom dies too, you know? And then we ended up, you know, I went back to look for that moment. Camera was totally off. I know we talked about it. I hugged him. We went back and talked to his mom. I called my mom that night. None of that is in the footage. But you're the first person to say, is that why you went and filmed your mom? And I think that might be the case. That footage, is that something, there's also some scenes with your, your, your children. Yeah. Is that something, that kind of grew out, and it's mostly at, towards the end of the film that we start. you start putting yeah. a little bit more of your family and yeah. life in there. Is that something that just naturally kind of grew out of the process? The footage that I shot with my dad and my kids at home happened when I was in the process of making the film, but the footage of my mom, no. You know, first it was the trip to the, um, her ranch in Wyoming where she had grown up, and that was, that was really that was sort of a you know a special trip going back to this place that we didn't. We should, we should say your, your mom when you were filming her. She it was three years after she had been diagnosed with with Alzheimer's. Correct. And so part of this is also going back that Wyoming home. And I think was a childhood home or is that of a, fam hers, a family yeah. home? Okay. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and absolutely. And that's the great tension in the footage for me because my mom absolutely did not want. She didn't want people to know she had Alzheimer's. She definitely didn't want to be filmed, and so. For me and those who know my mom, filming her in that state was an act of betrayal. Um, and yet, obviously for me, it was out of need and love and wanting to capture some trace of her knowing that she was disappearing. Um, so I'm sort of doing it in this very, you know, sort of hiding myself while I'm doing it way. And the duration of the shots in Wyoming are ridiculously short. I don't hold shots for like longer than six seconds. Um, I mean, it was interesting going back and trying to cut it. Like I'm totally turning the camera off all the time because I'm constantly feeling like I'm being caught. Um, but the second time I filmed with her, she was so far gone into her Alzheimer's that it didn't feel self-conscious to me. She had no idea even what was going on really other than a conversation with me. And I really thought I was, it was private and no one would ever see this footage. And in fact, I didn't look at it for probably six years after I shot it, um, and I was sort of afraid to look at it again. Because some of the footage that you use in camera person is so emotionally charged, and it, it's emotionally charged in the, in, in the films that they appear as well, but being aware of your presence, I'm thinking of the hospital with the baby, uh, which is which was very difficult to watch, and, and even just thinking about you um, in listening to the, the premise of the story, also coming back to this, this mm -hmm. Uh, women, woman from Afghanistan who who uh, doesn't want this film to be out there. Is there a line that you have developed and that you've developed with your filmmakers that you work with, the directors that you work with, in terms of that relationship with the subjects and what you're responsible to, and even a need to potentially once in a while get involved in their lives, or is that something where you have like a a code of ethics where you're like, I'm not. You know, it, in some ways it would be nice if there could be a clear code of ethics, mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, the situations are so changing and so variable. I know, you know, when I was working with Christy Turlington on a film about maternal health, there was really a moment 
where we were all struck by the sort of insanity of us continuing to film and not um, stopping and helping a person. And so we stopped and we, we actually, you know, had the discussion and filmed us having the discussion and then we made a decision to stop filming. Um, but you do something like that and then, you know, after the fact, it turned out later that same clinic told us for weeks after we left there were people flooding into the clinic having heard that there were people who were there helping and giving people rides to the hospital and helping financially. And so, you know, what you learn is you, you one choice might be feel like the right thing to do in a moment, but then there's an ecosystem that you are only temporarily part of. And if you sort of do these big gestures that feel like, you know, the generous thing to do in the moment, it may be that you tip the balance of this very fragile ecosystem. Um, but, you know, in the hospital in Nigeria, the hospital didn't have a blood bank and because of HIV and the mother who'd given birth to the twins was hemorrhaging. And so we went with the dad first to draw blood and see if he was a match and he wasn't a match. So we said, okay, we're gonna go to the market and buy blood. And then, you know, we bought blood in this random pharmacy, not knowing if it was the right kind of blood, if it was HIV negative or positive, and we brought that blood back and the woman revived. But those are the kind of choices, you know, there you are, an outsider to a hospital ecosystem. Right. And, you know, what is the right thing to do? I think it's very complicated. That's something that your film kind of, you know, you're thinking back about all these intense experiences and bringing it back. And one of my favorite moments was the, the, the little children with the wood pile. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, there's this, the, the kids are playing with an ax and there's one, I don't know, maybe two, three. He's kind of like a little too close to the ax. And you could hear, I think it's you. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And, definitely, and, 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 and definitely Judy, the sound person. I mean, it was hilarious because I was just in Bosnia and everyone saw that scene totally differently. They're like, everybody in the Bosnian countryside plays with axes. All little children grow up playing with axes. And that's what I sort of love about the movie is there's every perspective possible on yeah. what the material is. But that, for me, is that scene is quintessential in how it shows that what is ethical is something that may, you know, it teeters on an edge from moment to moment. A film that played, I mean, it seems like something that, in, in your world of the nonfiction, it seems like something that's becoming a more, a, a bigger issue. A film that played with yours at a couple festivals I was at was Sunita, which I don't want to ruin that film for people, mm -hmm. but I mean, that was a huge decision about what that filmmaker was going to do in relationship and it, it, I think she was smart to build that all into the film, but it made me think about the fact in, in watching your film that that's not, uh, as we get into this position where we're able to film in so many different remote places and there's so many more of these going on, and the idea is, I think, I think you would say probably, is to show what's going on and hopefully that can bring change. But there's a line in terms of being a documentary filmmaker of like what your involvement is. Yeah, and I mean, I really do think that this moment in history is qualitatively different than it has been. And I, I think this, um, the possibility of the worldwide distribution of images um, on the most local scale, mm -hmm. that people have smartphones and they can watch the footage that you film of anywhere in the world, it really changes things in ways that we haven't completely worked through. Um, and that's the conversation that I'm 
profoundly interested in. And I also say, you know, over and over, I'm saying like, we're all camera people now. You've got a camera, you've got a camera. What are we choosing to do with it? Um, you know, in these moments that are both deeply personal or deeply political. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an active conversation and it's not a conversation that's going to have clear, one clear set of answers. Um, and that's what I'm interested in doing is raising all these questions and problematizing these relationships. Um, one last question before I let you go. Um, the sound in this film. Mm, good for you. Um, okay, so like part <laughs> of it. Uh, well, part of it is I just imagine because I've heard enough raw footage from documentaries and it's problematic. So I imagine part of this is also having to like actually get. But there's also a very subtle, very powerful. Um, sound design in this film, which I don't feel like ever really kind of breaks the sense that I'm not watching footage. So I mean, oh, what, was that, what was this process like? Well, I mean, one, I worked with exceptional sound people for most of my career, and it's something that I say really strongly about the documentary process. I encourage people to work with sound people because this separation uh, of church and state, of camera and sound, is really, it really expands your possibilities. Um, so. In general, with the footage that I had, there was really some strong on-location recording. Um, but the part of the process that was so interesting for me, you know, one of the things I want a camera person to do is to bring the viewer along in the way that I evolve as a person. And in a certain way, I evolved as a camera person in my capacity to listen. Early on, I just thought I was framing, and it was all about the image. And then working with these great sound people, little by little, I realized, like, oh, the more you listen, the better you're going to see. And so for me, when I realized how intentionally Nels Bengerder, the great editor I worked with, and Amanda Laws, the editor who I worked with on the first Afghanistan film, the way we were really consciously thinking of constructing the film was both a construction of sound and image. And um, the extraordinary moment for me, though, was to get into the sound mix, um, both with Eric Milano here in New York and then Pete Horner at Skywalker, um, and to say, like, okay, I filmed that baby struggling for life for 12 hours. How do we create the intensity of that moment and convey to the audience immediately it's a life or death moment? Pete's idea was we strip away the sound. We make it almost silent. Uh, how do we convey that I'm really about to lose my mom, who I love more than anybody? Have the wind blow her away. You know, have Felix, my son, tap on the microphone and boom, 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 have it really hit. To speak to the emotional quality of this material through the sound um, became this intentional build, both through the edit and then into the sound mix. And, the people who recognize that makes me really happy, um, just because I feel like a huge part of my career as a camera person has been thanks to the extraordinary sound people I've worked with. Um, camera person, 
it's helped me with the opening schedule. It, we're in, you're in yeah. New York next week? New York, opening September 9th. September 9th. At the IFC. You're down at IFC. Yeah, okay. super excited about and, it. And then, I mean, you've been all over the world. I mean, I feel like every festival I look at, you've been since Sundance, you've, you've been <laughs> there with. But where else are you, tra are you traveling with the film after? Yeah, well, the great thing is it's going to be a national release. Oh, um, great. Yeah, okay. so we're going to be in a number of cities across the country, and we're opening in LA on September 23. Um, but there will be a full schedule available, and then we're doing, you know, continuing to do international festivals. Um, but it's just the greatest joy to me that the film is being released by Janice mm -hmm. Criterion has been this sort of miracle to me as a filmmaker to be placed in the company of um, the greatest films that have inspired me so much. So I'm I'm in a place of huge gratitude right now. Okay. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you. It's a great movie. <laughs>